Please turn back in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. Know that there is a service again tonight at 6 o'clock, so we will be out of here before that. No worries there for anybody. Um, last week, this is part two of our uh, working through 1 Corinthians 13. Last week, as we worked through verses 1 through 3 and then 8 through 12, and as we've seen evidence through much of this letter to the church of Corinth, what is apparent is that there is a great lack of love in the church of Corinth. And even as it pertained to ways that God would equip each of them for service, they saw those as ways to show off, to impress, in such a way as to inflate their own egos. And as we saw last week, God didn't give us our spiritual gifts to play with, uh, maybe like a child would enjoy their toys on Christmas morning. You know, we've put away childish ways. We were given gifts of service to serve. The gifts are simply tools that we have been given in order to benefit each other in love. Uh, the gifts are given us in order to love. Love is our pursuit. And the question now remains uh, from last week, since we skipped these middle verses, verses 4 through 7, what then is love? And if the church at Corinth had, had heard some of the songs that we might think of, or, or let's be honest, even us, when we hear a song like, uh, what the world needs now is love, sweet love, or all you need is love, love is all you need. When we hear songs like that, who is the first person we see as the one needing that love? And often it's ourselves. We might say, hey, there's love available. I'll take that. More of that, please. Give me this love. You might even think that the cure to all our ills is to grow in loving ourselves more. Even though God has never given us that command. And the problem with much of our thinking about love and, and uh, thinking like loving a spouse or maybe even a teenage boy telling his girlfriend, I love you. Or the idea that people need to love themselves more. The problem that plagues our thinking about love is this. That we far too often equate love with likes, appreciates, enjoys, uh, getting satisfaction from. Like, I love pizza. I love baseball. I love movies. Or even, I love how I feel when you're with me. So give me more of that. And enjoying things is good, but that's not love. In fact, enjoying things and enjoying people at their expense for my own personal pleasure could be the opposite of love. And as we learn from all over Scripture, a better definition of love would be something like this. A giving of myself, giving of myself sacrificially for the benefit of another. Giving of myself sacrificially for the benefit of another. And even as we see love defined or parsed out in this passage today, uh, we're also going to see love displayed by the only one who could ever love purely, perfectly, without any shred of selfishness, without any shred of lust. So let's go ahead and read verses 4 through 7 again and, and see what God's word has to say. Verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy 
or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. There, there are 15, 15 different descriptions of love. And the word over and over is this agape love in these verses. 15 different descriptions for us to look into. None of them written as adjectives in the Greek. None of them nouns. Everyone, all 15, are written as verbs. Verbs, actions. So just to be clear, love is not how we feel. Love is never how we feel. Love is something that we do. Love is something that you do. So, number one, love is patient. As a verb, we might say it this way, love waits patiently. It is long-suffering. Uh, sometimes patience can be confused for a lack of interest or a lack of emotion. Like, uh, well, you know, that's not that big of a deal. No big loss to me. I'm fine. That's not what patience is. Patience is being inconvenienced, being wronged without taking vengeance, without retaliating. Uh, Aristotle wrote that the, the only proper Greek way of handling uh, being wrong was to stand up for yourself and to fight back. You did that to me, you've you got to come to you then. And perhaps we hear that sometimes in our culture today. But then we see passages like James 1.19. Uh, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Uh, Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that they may give grace to those who hear. Matthew 5.39, but I say to you, Jesus said, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Romans twelve seventeen. Repay no one. What about this person? No one. But it's Facebook. No one. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Christ did this, didn't he? What did Jesus return to us for our evil? We all have sin. What did he return to us for our evil? Certainly not more evil. No, instead, when we had evil on our account against God, God sent his son to die to pay the price of our evil. When we gave God evil, he repaid us with good. Number two, love is kind. This word means useful service. Love acts in good will toward others. Love expresses unselfish concern for the well-being of others. Remember, these, these are not feelings. These are actions. So the kindness is not wishing someone well or, or just hoping that they'll be well. Kindness is doing something to cause them to be well. For example, Jesus continued in Matthew 5 after, after turning the other cheek, verses 40 and 41 say this, uh, If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, remember the Roman soldiers could, could require them to carry their stuff for a mile. 
If that happens, go with him too, Jesus said. Jesus says, don't just be patient with people. Be proactively kind as well. And not just in the face of friends, even in the face of an enemy. And that is exactly how God treated us as Christians. Titus 3, 4 through 6, But when the goodness of and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out to us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. When Jesus died for us, it wasn't because we were kind to him. It was because he is kind. Number three, love does not envy. Not envy. Uh, This is a burning of envy, a burning of sinful jealousy. Love does not burn with sinful jealousy. jealousy. Uh, Zealously desiring what others have for myself. Or wishing, seeking evil on them because they have it. Oh, that guy got that again. Uh, I hope he hope he suffers and you know that kind of a uh, attitude this is not how it is uh, now contrast god's jealousy with that kind of a jealousy god's jealousy which is to our advantage god zealously protects all that belongs to him and for that we should say praise god Exodus thirty four fourteen, we start to see this. It says, For you uh, shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. And we might say, well, how can jealousy be loving? Uh, but think about this. If we were to be worshiping other gods, what would be our end? What would, uh, what would be the result of us uh, rejecting the true God and worshiping others? Would we have the best? Would we have eternal joys? And we say the answer to that is, well, no. God certainly has a right to his own creation. He has a right to those he has redeemed. He's purchased us. And his protection of us ensures the fulfillment of his promises. So God's jealousy for us is appropriate and to our advantage. That's how God's jealousy is loving This passage now, though, love does not envy. It speaks of us desiring to have something that is not rightfully ours. You see the difference between those things? Uh, One of them hopes to take from another what I desire to be mine. God's jealousy looks to his own and protects them and secures our delight in him. Number four, love does not boast. It does not brag. Uh, this is the other side to our envy or our so- sinful jealousy. A uh, boasting is having having what we selfishly want and then flaunting it. Delighting in having what others don't. Boasting boasting only works when others don't have what we do. They have to be down in order for us to be up. So how would Christ's actions be contrary to bragging? How about Philippians 2? 5 through 8, it gives us an idea. It says, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself from God, taking on human form, and then further humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on 
a cross. If anyone had reason to brag, it's Jesus. But instead of using his perfect righteousness to show off, which would then cease to be perfect righteousness, right? But instead of boasting about his righteousness, he took it with him to the cross as our spotless sacrifice. Love does not boast. Number five, love is not arrogant. Love is not puffed up or conceited. Love does not inflate our egos. The idea of a balloon trying to blow itself up or, or begging others to blow our, our heads up, if you will. Love does not cause me to think highly of myself. Self-admiration. Inflated with my own importance or seeking attention. Remember in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 5-7, through 7, Paul writes this, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. When we get puffed up, it's us versus them. For who sees anything different in you? And he asks this great question, what do you have that you didn't receive? What do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Our salvation in Christ is not of our own doing, is it? It is a gracious gift that God has given to us. We have reason for humility, not arrogance. Now listen to this example from Jesus in John 13. Uh, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world of the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He didn't punch out before the cross. Loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God. So Jesus, knowing all these things, being in the presence of his betrayer, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And we know of Peter's initial bewilderment at the idea of the Christ doing the dirty work of washing the crud off of their feet. But Jesus was teaching them a crucial point. And, and none of us know what Jesus has known. None of us know what it's like to be aware that we are soon going back to God. None of us have condescended so far as to match what Jesus has done for us when we serve one another. Think about that. In a relation of one person to another, even if a person thinks they're better than the other person, that view is going to be inaccurate, yes? But even if it were true, and there was a person who's better than somebody else, the distance traveled to serve that other nowhere near compares with the distance Uh, a perfect, sinless Son of God traveled to serve us, to serve me, to serve you. And of course, Jesus' service didn't end in the upper room. Number six, love is not rude. Not rude. Love does not act unbecomingly, carelessly, crudely. Love does not elbow its way in. Uh, we could think back to the way the church was practicing the Lord's Supper back in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 as an example of this. Remember, the rich were finishing up all the wine and food. They were even getting drunk. And then declaring that the Lord's Supper was now completed. How wonderful was our participation in the Lord's Supper today when the poor were still left 
uncared for, not being able to participate in what is going on. You might say, well, how rude. Or in Luke 7, uh, 36 to 47, this is the account where, where Jesus was invited and eating with Simon the Pharisee. And the woman who comes in, and she's called who was a sinner. The woman who was a sinner, who knew she was a sinner, came and washed Jesus' feet. That woman wasn't the only sinner in the room, right? Simon didn't seem to remember that. She was amazed to be in the presence of the Messiah and treated him accordingly. Uh, While Simon the Pharisee was more interested in investigating Jesus to see if Jesus was good enough for him, and so he treated him accordingly. And so here's the contrast. A person who acknowledges and continually remembers their need for God's grace, grateful for his love and grace to them, becomes a gracious, loving person. Uh, Those who come to think that they belong in the family based on their own merit, like it's owed to them, God, I deserve this, you owe this to me, will tend to treat others rudely. Of course, the woman in Luke 7 who washed Jesus' feet she received an even greater gift, didn't she? Her sins were forgiven. She humbly believed and received eternal life. It doesn't say the same for Simon. Number seven, love does not insist on its own way. Love is not possessive, treating you like you exist for my good pleasure. How good that you arrived here today to make me feel good about myself. That's not how it is. Not this idea that I am the customer and the customer is always right, so give me what I want. This is a lordship issue, isn't it? Who is in charge here? Jesus helped to remind the disciples of how things needed to be in Matthew 20, uh, 25 through 28. Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, that their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even at the Garden of Gethsemane, what did Jesus pray? Father, if there be any other way, if there could be some other way, but not my will, May your will be done. Number eight, love is not irritable. Irritable, not provoked, not aroused into anger, not exasperated. Remember in Ephesians 4.26 it says, Be angry and do not sin. Read this earlier, verse 29, Not letting corrupting talk come out of our mouths, but only such as good to build up as fits the occasion. The idea is that my anger is not taken out on what you've done to take away my ease and my comfort and my desire, but in my love for you, in your love for another, when that person does that which is uh, not right in the eyes of God, you love them and desire to help them to be right with him. Two very different motivations, which will result in two very different responses. Uh, This irritability is a a selfish anger that stems from me not getting what I want when I want it. You didn't serve my interest the way I demanded, therefore you must suffer through a hateful comment, a cold shoulder, maybe through gossip. You broke my law. You will suffer my wrath. 
Christ, however, was silent before his accusers, before his executioners. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Christ could have called twelve legions of angels, we learn. And instead he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Number nine, love is not resentful. Being resentful is taking into account. It's a bookkeeping, a log, a record of wrongdoings. A think list between uh, a, married, a married couple and counseling. A married couple might come in for counseling, and, and here comes the list of all the reasons why I have a right to do all the things, all these nasty things, because my spouse has written all these things about me on their list. They, they come in together, and the fingers point like that, don't they? Uh, that can often be the case. In many relationships, a resentment says, I'm not going to stop thinking about the things you've done, the things you've done wrong, in order to make sure you don't get away with it. As if to say, if we forget about it, if I let this go, they might never have to pay for their wrong. And I just can't accept that. But then there's God's example of grace. 2 Corinthians 5.19 in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Praise God. In Acts 3, Peter preached, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, erased out of the book, removed from the log. The books opened and no guilt to be found. And number 10, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love does not delight in actions that grieve the Holy Spirit. Love does not delight in actions that hurt people. Uh, this is calling evil good. Now, we aren't to rejoice in seeing others fail. Uh, not having one of those, like, well, that serves them right, kind of a mentalities. Now, we aren't to rejoice in seeing others think they're happy while living in sin. You might say, well, you know, I know what they're doing is wrong, but I'm just glad they're happy. You know, when people decide they're going to pursue a sinful lifestyle and they say, I finally feel free, they may be free from the battle, the inward struggle that they're having, but they didn't win. They're losing. Are we to be happy that they feel happy when they're living in rebellion against a holy and just God? The answer is no. I think it's also fair for us to take into consideration what, what we entertain ourselves with. We live in an entertainment-saturated culture. What kinds of things allure us in the dramas that we watch or read? What are the points, the details about them that make us uh, gravitate that direction? What kinds of things make us laugh in the comedies we watch or the books we read? Uh, what are those actors who are real people who will answer to a real God? What are those actors being asked to do or to say in order to amuse us? And, and then this happens. We know this happens. And when, when those actors, actresses, relationships in those shows bring trouble to their real marriages, does it cause us to reflect and change our actions? Or, or do we maybe even further get a kick out of reading about things on social media and the tabloids on all the dirt, on the divorce? More entertainment out of this. That's, that's yucky. <laughs> 
We should be concerned for their souls. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Uh, Does God rejoice in justly executing his wrath? On this other note, when God sees sin going, does he go, oh yeah, line it up? No, not like that. Jesus said this in Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her, under her wings, and you were not willing. That's not celebration. That's lament. Our gracious God did not put us in his sights to shoot us down because of our sin. Instead, he ordained a sacrifice. Number 11, love rejoices with the truth. Uh, Love applauds the truth. Uh, This this might seem like a strange contrast to rejoicing at wrongdoing, but really it's not. Uh, Imagine seeing a misunderstanding at the office that, that could go in your favor. A wrongdoing that benefits you, you think. But instead of celebrating your promotion at the expense of another, you celebrate the truth. And then everyone wins. Jesus asked the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus also said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. We need truth today. We need truth. And in all days. A truth is not relative. Truth is not how each individual feels about something. Remember, we can feel incredibly strongly about something and still be entirely wrong about it. Truth is objective reality. And we are sinners. And Jesus is the one and only Savior Truth matters, and if we love people, we must speak the truth to them in love. Uh, Back in Acts 3 again, Peter told that Jewish crowd, that crowd of people, you killed the author of life. What a great way to get into that conversation. (laughs) Imagine hearing that. You killed the author of life. It says they were cut to the heart. Can you imagine hearing that? But they and we need to know the truth of the bad news before we'll appreciate the good news. If I think Jesus died for me because I'm so awesome, and we might even hear the phrase, because he loved me so much. But when we think of it that way, we're thinking of it like, we make him feel really special inside, so he died for us, like I love pizza. We think about it that way, we've missed the gospel. We've missed the gospel. While we were yet sinners, Christ loved us, died for us. We need to know the bad news so that we can appreciate and love and believe in and rejoice in the gospel, in the good news. Number 12, love bears all things. We have these all things, uh, these last couple. Love bears all things. This means to cover Uh, to support, to protect. Love bears all things, B-E-A-R-S. It does not bear all things, B-A-R-E. It does not expose others. We might think about this in relation to parenting. Uh, As a child grows, uh, loving parents will seek to cover, to support, to protect through teaching 
through training, instruction, discipline, and in a way that even when the going is tough, even when the parenting is hard, others see in the parents an eager expectation, an eager expectation for their child, and a bearing of the responsibility to raise the child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Not flaunting about everybody's sinfulness, not saying, boy, can I trade kids with you or anything like that? Not that. Loving your children and eagerly expecting God to work in them for his glory. In Romans three twenty-five and 26, we read that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Propitiation, that word, it is a covering of our sin debt. A covering. Christ taking our wrath. We could never cover that debt. So Christ paid it. Christ paid the debt. He bore our sin. Number 13, love believes all things. Uh, so not, not being suspicious or, or cynical. Assuming the best. Having confidence. Remember, this is not a feeling. This is not a feeling. It is a choice in relationship to trust. It is an action. Love trusts. And even when that trust is broken, because it is, right? Even when that trust is broken, love seeks to rectify, to heal, to restore. Galatians 6, 1, Brothers, if anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. And this is comforting. Our belief in a person's restoration is not based on how good we are, how good they are, because we know ourselves too well. Our belief is based on the promises of God. In Philippians 1, 6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. We can believe all things because God has promised these things. It's God who gives us the source of belief. Romans 8, 28, or 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of a son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. It's as good as done. 14, love hopes all things. Hopes all things. Even when trust is continually broken, even when there seems to be no reason to believe, love still hopes. It took a miracle for me to be saved. It took a miracle for you to be saved, to bring us to repentance. God can do that with anyone. And God has given us the blessed hope of Christ's return, of eternal life with him, a new heaven, a new earth, where everything will be made new. You might say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Because we know how all this ends. How all of this is redeemed. We can have hope even during the hardest of times. And the answer and solution isn't anything that this world has to offer, is it? But we can have hope no matter what, because we know where the victory lies. Number 15, love endures all things. The word for endures was a military term, uh, meaning holding a position, holding your ground, no matter what may come. Hebrews 12 gives us 
uh, this picture of Christ's endurance as our model. Uh, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, every sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. When we're getting beat down by the world, Jesus was too. Look to his endurance and endure in him. Okay, good job. You made it through all 15. Go down to verse 13 now. Let's finish this chapter up. Verse 13 says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. We know this. Love never ends. Love never ends. Faith, faith will eventually be turned to sight. Hope will eventually be fulfilled. We won't need that kind of faith. We won't need that kind of hope because it's all going to be right there. But love is eternal. Love will never end. So now we think about these truths from 1 John 4. God is love. This is what love is. God is love. And we love because he first loved us, right? So let's look at these things. Uh, God is love. God did not zap mankind out of existence at the garden, not even in the flood. God didn't end your life when you first sinned. We can't even be plucked out of his hand now as his children, as a sheep, even though we still can sin. God is so patient toward us. And in our sin, in our rejection of his lordship, he allowed us to see his word to learn of our sin and and the necessary sacrifice of Christ. He worked in our hearts to bring us to repentance and salvation when we didn't deserve it, when we wouldn't have even wanted it on our own. God has been so very kind to us. Uh, When we'd be prone to distract people's attention and affection from the very best that they could have in the universe, God, when we'd try to rob others' joy by bringing them delight in us, don't pay attention to anything but me right now. God has given us the very best. It's Him. There's no better joy than to have God. There's no better thing to delight in than in God Himself. And God has given us forgiveness and access to Himself through Christ. God only gives you the best. And so He gives you Himself. God has lovingly been jealous for us so that He can share with us His glory. Speaking of glory... There's nothing in the universe more glorious than God. And yet, while we were yet sinners, God the Son emptied himself, took on flesh, lived in this sin-cursed world, experienced hunger, experienced fatigue, even temptation from the evil one. God allowed himself to be the baby of a teenage mama. Can you imagine this? And he did all of that to die on a cross. God did not come to earth to demand a party. He came to die. God does not boast. And and even if, 
even if there's a ton of fanfare, even if there's a ton of worship. I might read in Ezekiel about all of the glory of heaven and the worship of God. He deserves all of it. Every bit of it. When the disciples were getting puffed up and inflating their own egos, arguing about who was the greatest among them, Jesus showed them what greatness looked like by washing their feet, becoming a servant to all of them. And that was just the beginning, right? Jesus did far more than wash our feet. We've been made clean by the blood of the cross. God is not arrogant. When Simon the Pharisee had Jesus over for dinner, Jesus didn't demand fanfare or a big celebration. Even when Simon criticized Jesus for letting the woman wash his feet, he taught Simon a lesson and gave that woman far more than she could ever have given him that day. He gave her eternal life. Uh, Think about this. In heaven, God is not going to be pointing a big finger at you, a big finger at me saying, you'd better bow down or else. That's not God's posture. Do you know why? Because he's going to take away our sin. The reason why we may not bow down to an earthly king or ruler like that is because there's a doubt in us that that would be a good idea. The reason we don't bow down to God like that is because there's a doubt in us that it's not the best idea, that there's something better. But God is going to take away our sin, our imperfection. We will be made perfect and we will want to do what is right. We will want to do what is good. And all of the wonderful pleasures of following God that are withheld from us, that we withhold from ourselves because of our sin, God is going to take all of that away. And we will want to do nothing but that which is right. Our full joy will be made full in happily, voluntarily worshiping Him. God is not rude. He is that great. Uh, When the only one who did know exactly what it was going to take to take on the wrath of God, every bit of justice that God was going to give, that was due as a result of our guilt, of our sin, Jesus said to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus did not insist on his own way. When Jesus was being oppressed and afflicted, when he was being led as a lamb to the slaughter, he didn't call down fire and brimstone. He readied himself for our judgment. He didn't call that multitude of angels down for his defense. He prayed for forgiveness for his offenders. Jesus is not irritable. Can you imagine how many sins would be in our books, in our records with God? Uh, when, When we sinfully keep lists on others, We can only think about their wrongs as it relates to our own and what we see all around us. We're not perfect record keepers. Even when we're bitter and we make stuff up that didn't even happen, we still can't keep a perfect list of anyone's sins. But God is holy. God is just. God is all-knowing. Not a single sin either that we've done in public or that we've done in private, even things that have been done in our own hearts, Not a single sin is unknown to God. And he sent his son to blot every one of them out of the books. Everyone. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. God is not resentful. God God did not get pumped up about the death of Adam and Eve when they ate the fruit. He didn't put the tree in the garden because he had an itch to show off his wrath. 
God doesn't eagerly anticipate our sin. He purposes to redeem us from it. And even with those who reject his grace, he laments in their rebellion. God does not rejoice in wrongdoing. When Pontius Pilate questioned the existence of truth, what is truth? Jesus refused to lie or to manipulate the situation that he was in, which was leading to the cross. And it's a good thing he remained true. If Jesus had abandoned the truth, he would no longer have, we would no longer have a suitable sacrifice. And we would have known that he wasn't the God, he wasn't the, the Son of God because God rejoices in truth. In our weakness, he's made strong. When we come to him in repentance, knowing that we could never bear the load of our own sin, Christ frees us, having borne our load at the cross. God bears all for us. When we're at a loss for how life is going, when we can't seem to shake a sin, when we can't figure out how we're going to get out of this mess that we've gotten ourselves into, you know who isn't shaken? God. We often are more concerned with our levels of ease and quality of life how we feel at the moment, how things are going for us. We're often more concerned about that than we are concerned about our righteousness. God is more concerned with our righteousness. And he's going to finish the work that he started in you. He's going to finish it. God has no trouble believing all things for you because he's the reason all the things he's promised are going to be fulfilled. He doesn't doubt. When Jesus prayed for us in John 17 that we, the church, would be a united family together in such a way that the world would see the light of Christ through us, that we would uh, be, that the world would be able to see all of his glory in eternity. Christ could pray uh, that prayer to the Father with all hope, with a confident assurance that God keeps every one of his promises. God prayed, Jesus prayed in hope that we would see God's glory, the church would see God's glory with full knowledge that it would come to pass. Even though the disciples could argue and display a disunity, Christ had all hope in God's perfect plan, perfect will to unite the church together with Christ. And even though Jesus knew he'd come to die, even as Judas betrayed him, even as the Jewish people that God had made into a nation rejected him, even as he approached being crucified by his own creation, where he would bear our sin, Christ endured. It is finished, and joy was set before him. And because of him, joy is set before us. Christ endured. Church, God is love. God is love. Look to Jesus and see love. And we love because he first loved us. Do I want to grow in patience? Then I should look at God's patience towards me. It makes a lot more sense to show kindness to people who disagree with me on some important things, maybe even someone who's wronged me in some way, when I remember that Christ died for me when I was a sinner. Uh, Maybe Christ even died for them while they're a sinner. Maybe God even has you there in their life to point them to Christ. Uh, Am I struggling with wanting what others have when God has already given me something infinitely more valuable? Remember, Paul called everything else rubbish, dung. When he does that in Philippians 3, that word rubbish is just there to kind of smooth things over. It it means excrement. And Paul called everything else dung compared to knowing Jesus. Your neighbor's greener grass, it's rubbish. Don't tell them that, though, all right? 
Your, your co-workers' vacation plans, dung. Your sister's superior beauty and popularity, your brother's bigger muscles. Compared to knowing Christ, worthless. Worthless. Christians, we don't need what the world has. They need what we have. Uh, but should we think that we're more special because of that? Because we have this free gift of grace in our salvation? Should we view ourselves more highly? Or should we take the role of a beggar trying to show other beggars where to find bread, the bread of life? It is really hard to get a big head when we're regularly meditating, when we're regularly considering how we, might became, how we became the children of God. When we think of God's love for us, it makes sense to be humble. It can be pretty hard to think that I'm the most important person in the room when I remember, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Remembering God's love for us prevents us from getting inflated egos, being rude towards others. Instead, it keeps us humble, courteous, gracious. <laughs> the, lost, the lost might not like what we believe, but they really shouldn't have many other reasons, if any at all, to hate being around us. Does that make sense? A Christian who loves because they know they've been loved will be an inviting presence, not a repulsive one. You get the idea? What God has called us to do is to look at the world, to look at our relationships through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of his love, his relationship with us. And when we do that, there's really no room for irritability for resentment. There's no joy to be had when others fail. Church, we are Christians, growing in Christ-likeness, which means we should be becoming more and more like the loving Savior who gave his life to redeem ours when we were his enemies, uh, to trust in and to share the truth, to hope for the best, to believe that God is going to do everything according to his will in a way that conforms us and all our brothers and sisters in Christ into the image of Christ. God is love, and we love because he first loved us. So let's continue to pursue our knowledge of Christ through the word. Let's learn of and keep fresh in our minds his great love for us. And let's learn from that, be fueled by it, energized by it, to love one another to love the world, and all of this to the glory of God. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your great love for us. Lord, in the midst of uh, the world that we live in, It is so easy to get caught up into arguments, so easy to get caught up into debates, so easy to get caught up in the thinking that um, the greatest pursuit in life is, is a pursuit of pleasure and ease. God, you've given us so much more. What you've given us is far better. God, Forgive us where we think that other things are more important than you, than the truth of the gospel, than, than the need of others to hear the message of salvation. 
God, I pray if there would be somebody here today who has not put their faith and trust in Christ alone for their salvation, that you would work in their hearts. That they would remember hearing of the bad news of, of our sin, of their sin, and but delighting in the good news of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, his victory. That you would work in their heart, that they would desire to repent and follow hard after you. God, I pray that as we think about, as we even leave here from today, Lord, um, considering, thinking, meditating on the truth of your great love for us, as that fills our hearts, Lord, may that love pour out of us towards others uh, for their good and for your glory. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.